It's good to be with you today. Christ the King Sunday, we call this. That idea of a king a little bit is ancient, isn't it? We don't exactly have kings. We might have presidents who think they're kings from time to time, and we might have people that put themselves in positions of leadership and say that they're the king over us, but we don't particularly have that idea of king in our culture today. I hope that we can bring that back a little bit, and we need to, to understand Christ's lordship in our life. Most kingdoms do anything to protect their king. Do we have any chess players in the room? The idea of chess, the whole concept, is what? Protect the king at all costs. In fact, the king is the most useless piece on the board, I would think, if you think about the strategy of chess. Everybody's moving around the chessboard, the pawns and the queen and the knight, and they're all there to protect the king until the king falls. When the king falls, the kingdom falls with it. You know, this idea of the king being the last to fall, uh, another example of that happened uh, during the invasion of Normandy, D-Day, in 1944. Winston Churchill was the prime minister of England, and he had this idea that he wanted to, to put himself near the front lines of the battle so that he could witness the invasion. And so he had planned to be on a battleship and on the bridge of the battleship so he could watch the whole thing happen. Well, the news got back to a U.S. general named Eisenhower that the Prime Minister of England was about to do this, and he strongly, Eisenhower, reached out to Churchill and said, no, you can't do this because your life is going to be at risk, and if you fall, that means it's going to be devastating for all the Allied troops. Churchill was going to go forward with his plans, even against Eisenhower's advice, so Eisenhower appealed to the higher authority. There was the King of England, King George VI, and he told him what Churchill was about to do. King George reached out to Churchill and he said, well, if it's good enough for a prime minister to be on the bridge of the battleship during the battle, then it's good enough for the king to be there as well. And what did Churchill do? He reluctantly backed down and he said, I can't do this because I can't put the king's life at risk. Protect the king at all costs. I can understand Peter and the disciples. Jesus has been at the peak of his popularity, and he's going around healing people and talking about the kingdom of God coming in. It's obvious that he's going to be the one to usher in this kingdom. And then all of a sudden, Jesus starts to talk about suffering and being denied and going to trial and, and, being, and being crucified and dying. And Peter and the disciples say, no, the king can't fall. And there's this one place in John 13 where uh, Peter says to Jesus, he says, I will lay down my life for you. Protect the king at all costs. When the king falls, so does the company. When the star of entertainment and the mogul of a whole company falls, there's a big shadow over the whole industry. When the boss fails at work or the president fails at work, that's not good for the company, and you know that. When the star athlete or the quarterback goes down, Packer fans, it's not good. That's why 
I struggle to follow King Jesus. Because his rule is so different than all the other rules and kingships in my life and the people that we look up to to take leadership. And here we have this Jesus who, who says, I need to suffer and I need to die and I need to... And I think to myself, that's not a successful leader. That's not a king that has led the charge, but that's a king who has died. That's a king who has failed. And maybe you struggle to follow his lordship as well. And when we look into the scripture today, I want you to find along with me that when you fail to follow Jesus in your life and, and when we fail to follow his lordship and his leadership and we don't want to give over the keys, and trust me, I'm a pastor and I should be the first one to be following his lead and his lordship, but so often I think to myself, I can do it better and this calling that you've given me as a pastor, this, I need to be the one with all the solutions and I need to be the one that, 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 that makes it succeed and I struggle with his leadership and I struggle with his lordship because he says, no, I want my grace to lead you. Not the power of man. And Isaiah said it this way. He said um, that he had no beauty to attract us to him and nothing in his physical appearance that would draw us to him. In other words, it's not about the optics with Jesus. It's about the grace. And if you struggle, like me, to follow him day in and day out, 24-7, all the time, each day, every day, Every day, all day, till he comes back, return to his grace and what he's done for you. Because it's there in his grace and his sacrifice that you find kingly love. Not kingly power or kingly force, but you find a love of a king unlike any other. And the Holy Spirit writes it down for us about his kingly love. But after having Jesus flogged, the king, Pontius Pilate, handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand And they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff out of his hands and they struck him on the head again and again. And after they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. You see in verse 26 that they scourged in some translations or they flogged him. Um. Scourging or flogging was actually part of the crucifixion process. It was meant to weaken the body to the point of circulatory shock. And this is going to get a little bit graphic, um, but to the hearers of the original language, they would have known exactly what was happening here. You have two big, strong soldiers, and you have a criminal stripped down in front of them, and they had a scourge in their hand. A scourge was a, was a stick, and at the end of the large club, more, more than a stick, were leather straps, and the straps had pieces of shrapnel or metal balls at the end of it sewed in. And, and that, that strap, they would take the scourge and they would hit the back of the criminal, and the metal balls would make deep contusions into the tissue. And then, in those straps were also shards of sheep bone 
so that when they pulled back, they could take as much flesh with them. Now, that happened again and again until the criminal started to confess his crimes. And Jesus remained silent. What kingly love for you. That wasn't the end of it, but that was the part that would scare people. And that's how kings ruled back then. They called it the Pax Romana, and maybe you've heard that in your history books, because that's a very powerful and effective way to rule. Fear. Every time that somebody would hear about the scourging or hear about the crucifixion, they'd think to themselves, there's no way I'm going to rebel against Caesar. There's no way. That's why Rome enjoyed such power and prestige and economic and advances and social advances because they ruled by force. Anybody that would even come close to rebellion or call themselves a king, King Jesus, would be put underneath the scourge, would be put underneath the crucifixion um, uh, trial, and then they would be, they'd be publicly humiliated throughout. Effective kings rule that way. Effective leaders rule that way. It's called the law. And it brought extreme peace, and you could almost call it a peace by force. No one would mess with Rome. Effective kings rule by force, and that's why you see what you see in the crucifixion as it continues on. It's more of a humiliation propaganda than it is just an execution. So here you have these soldiers that, by the way, they're not physical therapists, and so the scourging that they would do was to bring the, the, the criminal to uh, almost death, but not death, so that the death on the cross would be quicker. Very often they died during the scourging. But after that, they bring Jesus into, it says, the praetorium or a courthouse. And there at the courthouse, the soldiers, it usually takes four soldiers to crucify somebody to do everything that it says. But it says a whole company of soldiers come around. In other words, that there's less uh, guilt if more people participate. And here they have a good time with Jesus. And now King Jesus is King Clown Jesus as they strip him of his own clothes. They put a royal robe around him. They take a thorn bush or a thorn uh, crown and they stick it on his head to increase the pain and the blood flow from the head on down. They put a staff in his hand and they bow down to him, mocking him. O kingly love for you. He remained silent. And after all of that, they took the club out of his hand and they started to beat him with his very own scepter. They put his clothes back on him and they let him out, it says, to be crucified. Like a, like a mule or a donkey or some sort of animal that was going out. He rode in on a donkey as a what? King. Now he was being let out. O kingly love for you. And if the historians are right, then the cross behind me is pretty accurate. Because the cross, it seems like, wasn't high up in the air, but it was low, down near the ground, by the highway, so that people that were walking by could make eye contact to add to the humiliation, to add to the desperation of the family members that were there, that they couldn't help the one that was right in front of them. Completely helpless, completely on display, so that you never mess with King Caesar. O kingly love for you. And after hours and hours of hanging on that cross, 
he gave up his life for you. Effective kings rule by force, but this king ruled by sacrifice. And if you're listening today and you think to yourself, I, I can't, I don't know about this Bible and I don't know about this Jesus. I don't know if this, I can believe that this, this historical event happened in, my time, in that time 2,000 years ago. First of all, I want you to, to think about this, that everything that you heard from the Gospel of Matthew about the crucifixion is everything that the secular writers write about what a crucifixion was all about. But then think about this, why would the Holy Spirit include this story in the Bible? And by the way, not just once, but four times that all four gospel writers would include this scene of the main character of the Bible, the hero, so to speak, the king, being put on a cross in such a humiliating way that was almost difficult, that was so difficult for me to say from up here and difficult for you to listen to. Why would they include that in this if it wasn't true? It is true. That's why they included it. It's a historical fact that Jesus of Nazareth died on the cross. It was because of his love that drove him to die on that cross and to remain silent through it all that shows you how kingly a love that you have in your Savior and how much God loves you. Um, I remember seeing the movie The Lion King. Has anybody, does anybody remember that movie? I remember it was, one, it was years ago when it came out, and it was crazy that I went to see it with who I did. It was with my grandfather who went to heaven this last year. And he was the type that, uh, you know, we loved grandpa, but he was never the type to take us out to movies. And all of a sudden we were up there, maybe even for a holiday like Thanksgiving, and I remember him saying to us, um, now this was the grandpa that if you got a hug from him, you're like, oh my goodness, he loves me. And uh, maybe you had a grandpa like that too. There is a genuine love there. And it grew deeper as I got to know him growing up. But he said, let's go, I'm going to take all the kids to go see Lion King. And we thought, that sounds great. We've never done something so fun with Grandpa in our life. And we went to the movie, and one of the scenes that really stuck with me, maybe it stuck with you too, was that scene, well, first of all, the setup to the whole movie is there's Simba, the cub, who is the heir apparent to the throne. There is Mufasa, his father, the king. And then who's Mufasa's brother? Scar! And Scar is the bad guy, right? He's the one that wants to knock off Mufasa and Simba so that he, the brother, can have the kingdom himself, right? Do you remember the scene, I think it's pretty early on in the movie, when um, Scar has hatched this plan with his hyenas, his henchmen, that they would start a stampede and he was going to catch both the cub, Simba, and the father, Mufasa, in the stampede at the same time and then the kingdom would be his. He starts the stampede and sure enough, uh, there's Simba, the innocent little cub, right in the middle of it. He's about to get hit by it. Mufasa hears about the stampede. And so the king goes running out, right? And the king sees his son right there in the middle of this stampede about to get trampled over. And the king jumps in front of him, if my memory serves right, and he swaths him. He, 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 he hits his son out of danger's way. The, the cub is safe, but the king is not, right? The king is about to get stampede. He runs up a cliff. And if, if my memory serves me right, he was climbing up this cliff all the way to the top and he puts his hand on the side and who's at the top? Scar. Scar, instead of reaching down and saving him, Scar, I think he takes his claw and he pierces his hand and, and the king falls to his death at the edge of the cliff. And there's Simba running up to his father in one of the most heart-wrenching scenes. He nuzzles up to the carcass and he says, Dad, Dad. O kingly love. 
Jesus is the king. But it wasn't enough for him to keep the kingdom himself. So he had his hands pierced for you. And he took the fall at the cliff because of his kingly love that said, I want you to have the kingdom. His royal blood for yours. Because I can't and always trust his love and I go off in this direction and I go off in that direction and I struggle with being devoted to him and and living that perfect life that he demands of that kingdom of holiness. He says, I'm going to live that life for you and I'm going to give that life to you through sacrifice. Now here's what he's made you into. He's made you into the king and the queen and the prince and the princess to live in his kingdom forever. That's completely free and it completely cost him something very expensive, his own life. He was raised to life after the third day and when he was raised to life, he in essence was saying, now you have the kingdom and you and my spirit's going to live with you and you're going to live on into eternity. You have the kingdom. Your response today is this, what can I do? What can I um, do for this king that has done for me everything that I need? I can trust his leadership. I can trust his lordship. I need to follow him because if I don't follow him, I don't have that forgiveness. Jesus says, worship me. But he doesn't demand it. He doesn't demand it. Here's the thing. In ancient days, uh, Caesar Augustus, he told people that he was what? He was the king, but he was more than a king. He had to go farther than that. And he says what? I'm also like a god. And so you better not disobey me. There's kings like that today that rule around the world, including areas like North Korea that say, you must obey and you must be devoted to me because I am like a king or like a God or I am God. But Jesus doesn't rule that way. Instead of demanding with the law saying, you must worship me and you must do what I say, he says, I've done it all for you and I've lived this life for you. And that's when we get these passages of worship that are beautiful saying that, that you have the kingdom, that you are the prince, that you are the the princess in his kingdom. And, and, he, and he's taken everything that you used to be and he's made it into what he is, perfect and holy and righteous in your thoughts and your words and your actions. And you desire to do that because of who he's made you. So Peter writes this. This is the same Peter, by the way, who at one point said, I'm going to give my life for you. And then at the next moment, he says, I don't know him. He was forgiven by Jesus And Jesus called him into this royal priesthood through his kingly sacrifice for Peter. Speaking to you and me, Peter writes, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. In other words, Jesus' sacrifice, his royal blood for your blood, means that you now live a royal priesthood. And so you... Man, who used to be filled with lust, used to be filled with jealousy, used to be filled with envy and greed, and he's now made you into a king with pure thoughts and pure actions. A king that says, I want to look out for the welfare of the woman in my life called my wife and her only And have thoughts and words and actions for her present or future wife. That's the king that he's made you into. 
And he goes to the woman who struggles with identity or struggles with with being loved or understanding God's purpose for her in this life. And he goes to her and he says, I've made you a queen. That's married to a king, Jesus, forever. You're his beautiful bride. And your identity starts with him. And he goes to the student and the young person who is struggling with identity and wondering who they are or, or their identity at school or their sexuality. And he goes to them and he says, you're first of all my child. And I make you who you are because you're loved by that kingly love first. Now, be my child. Be my prince and be my princess. He's called you out of that darkness into his wonderful light. Not like a king or a despot that says you must do this and you must do that, but a king that says I've given you this new life and I want you, I want you to thrive in it. I want you to live in it. I want your heart and your thoughts to be elevated from these things that you used to be entrenched in all the way up to heaven because you, heaven is yours and I want you to live there today. Most kingdoms, they do anything to protect their kings, but this king, he was a king that had to fall first, and he did fall first because he loves you. In closing, I want to share with you a song that has been on uh, my heart. It's not the easiest song to sing in the world, uh, but it is one song that has grown to become one of my favorites this week, thinking about this text. It's called, O Kingly Love That Faithfully, and it's written by a man named Martin Franzman, and he puts it beautifully. He says this about the love that we heard about this morning. O kingly love that faithfully didst keep thine ancient promises, didst bid the bidden come to thee, the people thou didst choose to bless. O lavish love that didst prepare a table bounties as the heart, that men might leave their puny care and taste and see how good thou art. O seeking love thy hurrying feet, Go searching still to urge and call the bad and good on every street to fill thy boundless banquet hall. This day we raise our song of praise, adoring thee, that in the days when alien sound had all but drowned that ancient true and constant melody, thy mighty hand did make a trumpet none could silence nor mistake. Thy living breath did blow for all the world to hear, living and clear. The feast is ready. Come to the feast, the good and the bad, come and be glad, greatest and least, come to the feast. O kingly love that faithfully loved you and loved me, let's worship him with our lives and let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us every richness of your kingdom, including the heavenly banquet that awaits us, and for calling all of us from the least to the greatest into a life of repentance underneath King Jesus. In the moments that we struggle with his lordship, let us go to his cross again and see the grace and sacrifice and forgiveness that he's given us in our place and then help our feet to follow in every way that you call us as a congregation, as an individual, as a parent, as a student, as a child, so that we can understand our life better as a king and a queen, a prince and princess in your kingdom. In Jesus' name we ask all of this, amen.